American Craftsman Podcast is sponsored by Bits and Bits. In their shop in Oregon, Bits and Bits manufactures a wide range of spiral router bits from one eighth inch shank to half inch shank, from one thirty second inch cutting diameter to half inch cutting diameter. They make upcut, downcut, compression bits, and more. They're used in router tables, handheld routers, and CNC machines, from hobbyists to production shops. They coat their bits in a Astro coating, proprietary nano coating designed to keep the bit running cooler, prolonging the sharpness of the cutting edge. They're the only factory authorized dealer to Astro coat white side router bits. Their expanding line of white side bits ranges from spiral flush trim bits to roundovers, chamfers, rabbiting bits, and more. They're a festival dealer stocking mainly router and domino related accessories and consumables. You can check them out at bitsbits.com and use our coupon code American Craftsman to save yourself 15%. All right, we're not wasting any time. We're going to get right into it. We're, we're refueled. Get a little yeah. Big Mike's little red store up in us. Oh, man, I'm so stuffed. And it's hot out. We were just outside for a couple minutes. I was stuffed until those and cookies came. <laughs> and I somehow wedged two cookies in there, too. Yeah, man, if I was you, I probably would have eaten all four. I'd be feeling... Oh. Pretty gnarly right now. Oh, man. Thanks to Mike. Always amazing. Yeah. If you're a, a local, check it out. Yeah, if you're ever in the neighborhood of Navasink, New Jersey, you got to check out Big Mike's Little Red Store. Um, but, yeah, anyway, uh, we got the last episode here of the Mid-Century Modern. Well, well, yeah, I guess what we're going to be calling the Mid-Century Modern. Yeah. Period. Um, we left off last with Arrow Saarinen, the tulip chair, tulip chair guy. And he, we were pretty impressed with his output. And yeah. Like the lasting legacy, we'll call it, of his work. I mm -hmm. mean, and we were talking about how we had just been talking about chairs and the impact that, mm -hmm. that the, the simple chair has made, the design, like Eames, yeah. Saarinen. I think I have a chair book back here. Let's see. It's like ABCs of chairs or something? Yes, oh, a, yes. A to Eames right there. A to Eames, that's yeah, cool. I'm yeah, pull out. that out. I'm pretty sure it's all chairs. Yeah. Yeah, look at... Yeah, pop it open. I bet you there's a... Uh, some of the people we just uh, looked at. We were just talking about. If you uh, if you haven't like gone on the the used book websites and the or, organic chair, the right organic there, chair, um, and looked for furniture books. Well, don't buy them all up because you got to leave some for me. But that's the best place to find them because you find these books for for next to nothing. I mean, I think I bought this book new. Um. I think this is a, it's not chairs. It's a mid-century book. Yeah, Zenota. Yeah. We talked about him. Yeah. No. No. Yep. Talked about them. That's who the tulip chair was designed yeah. for, wasn't it? Yep. Jacobson. Yeah, there he is. Indiana. This is that church that he designed. Yeah. Well. And ha you, we've seen knockoffs of this design oh, on churches. Yeah. Yep, with that real the roof line that comes really close to the ground. I'm telling you, that's one of my big takeaways. Is that's a cool light? 
there have been so many knock. These designs are so iconic. It's they've just been knocked off for fifty years. Yeah. Orangeworth House. I've heard of that. Yeah, Eames. Oh, we we saw this chair. Diamond chair. Yeah. Um. Oh, that's. Oh, that's gonna be this guy. Harry I bet, Bertoia. I think so. Yep. Bertoia. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Look up the book. Uh, from was it Ada Eames? Yeah. A visual guide to mid-century modern design. Lauren Wybrow with illustration by Tom J. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Look, it's got the stack chair. Yep. That's, is that the building um, that Saarinen did? Maybe. Got the, the wishbone chair right there. Yeah. We just saw those yesterday on the job. Wishbone chair knockoff. So, yeah. Quite appropriate. Uh, so, what do we got to learn about Harry Bertoia? Well, he was an Italian-born American artist sound art sculptor hmm. and modern furniture designer what's a sound art sculptor you ever see see those things they're usually made out of metal and like when the wind blows they'll make oh yeah play a tune or something like that like a fancy wind chime yeah in a way um so he was born in uh, San Lorenzo, Pordenone, Italy, at the age of 15. He moved to, of all places, Detroit. Hmm. I watched a thing last night. You know, in Detroit, it's a big thing to eat muskrat. You want to put that up there? What? Yeah. They call it the muskrat belt from Detroit South. Oh, my God. That I had whole, no idea. Yeah, the whole southeastern part of Michigan. It's a real big thing to eat muskrat. It goes way back, like the... Uh, there was some kind of Christian um, sort of settlement out there, and they were basically starving to death, and they were eating, they were literally eating hay, and then the, I don't know if it was the, the I don't think they were Catholics, it wasn't the Vatican, but some <clears throat> higher up church uh, official made a decree that they could eat muskrat. You know, during Lent, you weren't, you weren't allowed to eat meat at all. It wasn't Fridays. Right, right. It was in the entire thing of Lent. So they said, yeah, you guys can eat the muskrats. Oh, my God. I, I'd only heard about it in, like, Pennsylvania and, and those mm -hmm. kinds of places. Yeah. Um, some areas in the Chesapeake, like Virginia, Maryland, it, they eat muskrat. Um, I've apparently, heard it's, it's not that bad. I've heard it's really gristly and lots of little bones and stuff. Um, I mean, it didn't look too bad from what I watched. It looks like any type of small game, you know, like a mm -hmm. rabbit or like a squirrel or anything like that. I've never had squirrel, but rabbit's good. Yeah, I've had rabbit. Had snake. Snake, is, yeah, I've had snake. Uh, um, alligator. I've had that. But uh, that's about it. Anyway, that was a bit of an aside. Um, so I don't know if we're going to learn why... Um, Harry Bertoia moves to Detroit. Uh, he came to live with his older brother, Oreste. Hmm. I wonder what Harry's, if that's his real name, because he's born in Italy. Yeah, Harry's not really a very... Uh, no, it's sort of English-sounding name. What's well, like the uh, Italian version of, like, Horatio? Is there, is there one? I don't know. 
Because Oreste is his brother's name. No, that sounds more like an original name. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, Harry in Italian. What is the name for Harry in Spanish? That would be Enrique. Hmm. How come it's giving me everything but Italian? Possibly there isn't one. Yeah, I don't know. Italian translation of Harry. So I guess Harry is a word in Italian, but it's not. Oh, like you're harried and hopeless? Yeah. How to say Harry in Italian? Word hippo. No, this is giving me, yeah, like tormentare. Harold. Harold in Italian. I feel like this is just a name that he may have assigned himself. Yeah, sounds Cause, like it. Because nothing is, uh, I'm not getting any good results here. Haroldo, maybe. Yeah. Oh, maybe, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, you guys don't care. Yeah, I don't know. You never know what people care about these That's days. That's true. If you know what Harry would, the equivalent would be in Italian, let us know. Yeah, so Harry, at the age of 15, decides to join his big brother, Oreste, in Detroit. We don't know what brought Oreste to Detroit. The muskrat, obviously. <laughs> little muskrat cacciatore. Yeah. After learning English and the bus schedule... <laughs> He enrolled at Cass Technical High School where he studied art and design and learned the skill of handmade jewelry making. Hmm. Now we're talking about 1930, 36. I'd be interested in, in trying that. I'm not, I don't wear jewelry mm -hmm. or really know anything about it, but that seems uh, something small like that seems yeah. very approachable. When I was in um, junior high school in Arizona, we had a great art class mm -hmm. where we did stuff like uh, lost wax casts. Oh, yeah, and stuff I was just like about that. to say, my wife has done that, where you carve the wax and then you, you, you know, I guess you Packed put it, sand around it, yeah, and then pour the hot metal in and yeah. melts the wax. And yeah, she still has the ring. I mean, that was that was awesome. You yeah. know, we're seventh and eighth grade doing stuff like that. Now they're lucky you can wipe your ass in eighth grade. <laughs> We did leather tooling and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, but I guess, you know, that's those things are just diminished in value nowadays. Yeah. As far as their public school curriculum goes. Well, yeah, now they want you to be doing your extracurriculars so that you can, you know, get in get into college. Mm -hmm. um, well, so for Harry, there were three jewelry and metals teachers. There was Louise Green, Mary Davis, and Greta Pack. Um and in, I don't know why that made the notes, but Louise Green, Mary Davis, and Greta Pack are now part of our podcast. They might circle back in. In 1936, Harry attends the art school of the Detroit Society of Arts and Crafts, now known as the College for Creative Studies. And in the following year, 37, he receives a scholarship to study at the Cranbrook Cranbrook, there's that place again, Academy of Art, where he encountered Walter Gropius, uh, if I recall, of Bauhaus fame, mm -hmm. and Edmund Bacon, Ray and Charles Eames, and Florence Knoll for the first time. So yeah. this is like a hotbed here. Yeah. 
in Detroit. Both places. So, I mean, Home it really Little was. Caesars and mid-century modern design. A fortuitous uh, thing that it was Detroit. Yeah. Now, uh, now defunct city. I know. What a shame. I think, because think about the history of Detroit between now we know of this mm -hmm. mid-century and, of course, the, the, the auto-making. Yeah. Um, now just part of the Rust Belt. I know. I know. Well, starting out as a painting student, uh, but soon being asked to reopen the metal workshop in 1939, Bortoya taught jewelry design and metalwork. So he graduates <laughs> in a few years. He's the teacher. Yeah. He's the professor. Uh, so obviously he has some aptitude. Uh, I wonder how good his, his English was at the time. Hmm. You know, he's only in the country for... <laughs> Yeah, not too long, right? It was yeah. what, uh, well, he was 15, so yeah, it could be five, yeah. seven years maybe. Yeah, so <clears throat> it's not like uh, there were all those things to to help you along back then. Yeah. You know, like my mom and my grandparents, when they came from Italy, like you get to a point like past grade school, they just... Give, up, give up on you. Like, <laughs> yeah. You either like, learn English or you just stay yeah. home. I think my mom only went to the sixth grade because they were they didn't have patience for you. You know, if you can't speak, read, write at grade level, we're sorry. Now they just push you on to the next grade and call it a day. <laughs> so we're not gonna this is how we're gonna help you. Yeah. <laughs> Go out and work. <laughs> So Bortoya, obviously pulling himself up by his bootstraps, mm. is now a teacher. Um, and soon after this, the war effort is in full swing, mm -hmm. you know, World War II. And metal became very rare and expensive. So he began, began to focus on jewelry making, uh, you know, and not metal work. Mm-hmm. Designing and creating wedding rings for Ray Eames and Edmund Bacon's wife, Ruth. Mm, Ruth Bacon. Yeah. Sister Ruth Chris. Yeah. Uh, so when all the metal was taken up by the war efforts, he became the graphics graphics instructor. Jeez. Wow. So he's still at Cranbrook in 1943. Man. He married uh, Brigitte Valentina. And then moved to California to work for Charles and Ray at the molded plywood division of the Evans Product Company. Hmm. Um, so you could see these school ties are important. They still are. They were they was important then. They're important now. It's where they're indoctrinating all the young minds with their <laughs> socialist ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So we're 40s. We're in the 40s. He moves to California. Um, he also learned welding. And he, when he went to the Santa Monica College, began experimenting with sound sculptures. Uh, he worked there until 1946, then sold his jewelry and monotypes until obtaining work with the Electronics Naval Lab in La Jolla. Hmm. So here's this guy. He, he barely speaks English. He's got really no formal education Bouncing outside all art. Yeah. And look at what, how he's achieving 
He's working for the Naval Lab. I think that place is pretty serious, too. Yeah. In La Jolla. I, I think they did. They were doing a lot of like, uh, you know, very um, groundbreaking kind of stuff. It's like with radar. Yeah. And, it's amazing. I mean, people who are achievers and, you know, excellent, they oftentimes find their way. Yeah. You know, unless something, uh, you know, tragic intervenes. So. In 1950, he's invited to move to Pennsylvania to work with Hans and Florence Knoll uh, of, the, you know, Knoll Furniture. Mm -hmm. uh, Florence also studied at Cranbrook. So this Cranbrook, which I'd never heard of before these episodes, yeah. is a real breeding ground for all these influential mid-century designers. Now, where's Cranbrook? It's in Detroit. Oh, it is in Detroit. I'm pretty sure it is. It, yeah, let me see. I wonder if it's still around. I know. Cranbrook School. Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, it's a museum. Okay. But it's probably Cranbrook School. Yeah. Bloomfield Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Private college prep boarding school. I can only imagine what tuition is at this place. <laughs> let's, let's just see real quick. What? It's more than summer camp. Cranbrook. Let take, let's, let's take guesses. All right. Um, I guess it's probably going to give us a semester. A semester? So that's what, two a year? Yeah. Uh, 38500 All right. I, I was actually going to guess forty eight. Wait. This, uh, this is showing like uh, middle school, grade school. Oh. Oh, so it's not a... Um Maybe it's a different place. Upper school, grades 9 to 12. Day. Okay, this is for an academic year. Okay. 38,600. Nice. If you want boarding, 52,350. <laughs> That's for the people that don't want to see their kids at all. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay, here we go. Cranbrook Academy of Arts. That's what we're looking for. 2021 to 2022 tuition and fees. Total tuition, 40450 There you go. That's for the year? That's, that, I mean, that's not bad. No, that's, that's competitive. Not bad that probably doesn't have um, room and board, but... And all the supplies, I'm sure. Right. Enormous. Graduation fee, none. That's nice. Not bad. Cranbrook, good deal. Yeah. And storied history there. Yeah, big time. I never would have guessed. So um, it's 20 years on that uh, Bertoy has been in the uh, country. He's been quite successful. Um, starts in Detroit, California, now out in Pennsylvania. And during this period, he designed five wire pieces that became known as the Bertoya Collection for Knoll. Among these was the famous diamond chair, a fluid sculptural form made from a welded lattice work of steel. Yeah, this is, I remember this one. Yeah, that's crazy. It, it's... It's like a, 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 
a um, cooling rack for cookies mm -hmm. that got melted over this this geometric wire frame sort of yeah that's a that's a great way to describe it um it's got a really really minimal wire base mm -hmm. and then the top what would you say those are like one inch the squares yeah maybe yeah. a little more yeah probably an inch is probably a fair estimate and yeah. it's in the rhombus shape it's not square to the front it's the you know the point is in the yeah that's the interesting between your legs would be right so it kind of looks like a stingray a little bit yeah yeah it and it's almost invisible in a sense mm -hmm. uh and i'm sure that's what he was going for something of that nature the one in the book i think had upholstery on the bottom ah um i'm sure they had different versions but yeah it's the diamond cool. chair yeah uh not what you would expect hearing the name no in bortoya's own words if you look at these chairs they are mainly made of air like sculpture space passes right through them so the chairs were produced with varying degrees of upholstery over their light grid work there oh, you okay. go and they were handmade at first because a suitable mass production process could not be found. Yeah, we know that. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know those things were expensive. Unfortunately, the chair edge utilized two thin wires welded on either side of the mesh seat. This design had been granted a patent to the Eames for the wire chair produced by Herman Miller. Herman Miller eventually won and Bertoya and Noel redesigned the seat edge using a thicker single wire and grinding down the edge of the seat wires at a smooth angle, hmm. the same way the chairs are produced today. Little headbutton going on yeah. there between old old pals. Yeah, surprising. Yeah. And they're still making these chairs. Well, again, 1950, right? Is that that's when this this chair came out? Uh, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, or shortly thereafter. That's mm -hmm. when he went went out to Pennsylvania. Um, nonetheless, the commercial success enjoyed by Bertoya's diamond chair was immediate. It was only in 2005 that Bertoya's asymmetrical chaise lounge was introduced at the Milan Furniture Fair and sold out immediately. Wow. Uh, so Bertoya also built sound sculptures. His textured screen, textured screen, caused much controversy when it was unveiled for the Dallas Public Library in 1954. Um, is that it on the far right? Yep. Why is that so controversial? I guess because it's 1954 and Leave It to Beaver is the number one show. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, who is this? Who is this Italian? <laughs> this has kind of like an Art Nouveau look to it. It does. Um, bunch of bunch of sticks in the muds. <laughs> oh man! In the mid fifties, the chairs being produced by Noel sold so well that the lump sum payment arrangement from Noel allowed Bortoya to devote himself exclusively to sculpture. 
Wow, he ultimately produced over 50 commissioned public sculptures, many of which are still viewable today. Wow. So he, he really was quite a guy. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, as cynical as we sound sometimes, he's definitely an example of the American dream as, you know, we might, you know. Uh, imagine it. Yeah, imagine yeah. it. That's the best way to put it. You know, it's, it's hardly, uh, you know, a, a regular thing, especially yeah. nowadays. But Certainly not universal, but there are definitely instances. But here's a guy pretty much, uh, you know, against some pretty steep odds. Yeah, I mean, he left Italy in 1930. Yeah. I mean, he just narrowly escaped yes. fascism. Exactly. I mean, when did Mussolini come into power? Uh, I don't know exactly, but he's late 1930s. Pre, he's pre-Hitler. Yeah, so probably yeah, around and 35. Hitler's 33, I think. So, oh, really? Yeah, I think Hitler's 33. Uh, might be off a year or two, but so it was a slow burn up to that. Might 39. have been why he, you know, came over. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, those types, you know, the artists. Yeah, yeah. you're one of the first to go. <laughs> They came knocking on those doors yeah. right away. Yeah. <laughs> All right, freak. Get in the get in the van. I know. So in the sixties, uh, he's now um seventy-five years old. No, sorry, forty-five, sixty years old. Wait, no, he was born in nineteen fifteen, so he's forty-five, yeah. yeah. He began experimenting with sound sculptures of tall vertical rods on flat bases. He renovated the old barn into an atypical concert hall and put in about a hundred of his favorite synambient sculptures. Hmm. Bertoia played the pieces in a number of concerts and even produced a series of 11 albums, all entitled Synambient. Um, of the music made by his art, manipulated by his hands, along with the elements of nature. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and in the late 1990s, his daughter found a large collection of near mint condition original albums stored away in his property in Pennsylvania. Hmm. Um, these were sold as collector's items. So in, in 2015, these Sonambient rec recordings were reissued by Important Records as a box set with a booklet of the history and previous unseen photos. Yeah, there's the diamond chair by Portoya. Oh, we got a, a, a nice super close, close up. up. This is the controversial single, yeah, single seat attachment. The bastard uh, Eames, Herman Miller, and Eames going <laughs> after our boy Harry Portoya. And it almost looks like this this cross bar here is on the top. It does, and then doesn't it? Over here, it's underneath. Hard to tell. It does look comfortable, though, despite it being made 100% out of wire <laughs> metal. metal. Yeah. Well, we got, we got one more before we get to our main man. Um, we have Marcel. I'm going to say Lajos Brewer. Marcel Brewer. It's another guy with a, a name that doesn't sound Hungarian. Right. Right. Um, I guess, I mean, I guess Brewer is, uh, uh, that's like a German. Almost German, yeah. yeah. 
And he was uh, born 1902, passed away 1981. So he's he grew up right in the thick of this period. Mm-hmm. Hungarian-born modernist architect and furniture designer. Again, like we mentioned last week, these folks, they really didn't pigeonhole themselves. No. You know, architect, furniture, sculptor, painter, um, you know, the Eames, of course, they did all kinds of stuff with the war effort, the splints. Yeah. Um, things working plywood and curving it and bending it. Uh, so Brewer was at the Bauhaus where he designed the Wassily chair and the Seska chair. The New York Times have called these some of the most important chairs of the 20th century. Well, we gotta take a well, look. These better be links. Oh, oh yeah, we, I remember seeing this. Yeah, we saw this when we were uh, going through Bauhaus. This looks like a rendering. That can't be real. Yeah, this like has the look of like one of those old school folding beach chairs. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you try and follow the tubing around, it's tubing and like canvas or, or some sort of material stretched yeah. taut. Almost like a director's chair meets beach chair meets Bauhaus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it definitely looks like canvas. Yeah, I mean, it's like a high-endy kind of folding beach chair. Yeah. I mean, the other one doesn't fold, but it still has that same... Appearance, very open framing, a mm-hmm. um, lot of curves like where you might not expect them. Yeah. Wesley chairs in the Bauhaus of Dassault. I can't go down. What kind of picture is this? They only show you the top. Like here's the top third of the chairs. Yeah. That almost looked like it was leather or something. Nice. It's hard to control a screen that's like six feet away. <laughs> um, so somebody in the Times thought these were pretty important. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, we've all seen this chair. Oh, my God. The Seska chair. Wow. Holy cow. Uh, I, I mean, that's been in a, a thousand and one restaurants. Yeah. Got wood, looks like maybe finger joints there with mm-hmm. the cane cane seat and back. Holy smokes. C-E-S-C-A. Look, it's missing a foot over here. Yeah. Seska, I believe it's pronounced. Again, um, just a quick little Google. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll offer all the outlines for a flat rate at the end of the there you go end of the season ninety for two easy payments of ninety nine ninety nine. When did the Seska chair come out? Nineteen sixty eight by oh it was purchased by Noel in nineteen sixty eight, created in nineteen twenty eight by Marcel Brewer. That's that blows my mind. I would have guessed yeah probably this. The 60s or the 70s. It, it looks, looks like from so the 70s. 70, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's when all those knockoffs probably 
just flooded our consciousness. Yeah. Um, 1928, the Seska chair was the first such tubular steel frame cane seat chair to be mass produced. It was among the most among the 10 most common such chairs. One of the original ones from that time sits in the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Jesus Christ. Do we need any more hints that we got to go to MoMA? <laughs> We're going to be like a couple of nerds in MoMA. Take a picture of me with the Seska chair. <laughs> I can only imagine people going, who are these two knuckleheads? <laughs> I mean, I guess if you go to the MoMA, you're probably yeah, you're you gotta the same. Be. You got to have some sort of bent, you know, artistic bent. But you have to wear a beret <laughs> to get in. The thing is, you know, uh, to be this excited about chairs, it's just, it's just mind blowing how everywhere these designs are and how old they are. Yeah. That design's almost a hundred years old. Yeah. Never would have guessed that by a fellow Hungarian. Yeah. I'm another Hungarian with a German last name. There you go. So the Seska chair. I mean, the Wassily chair, you know, may uh, ring some bells when you see it. You'll see its influence. Yeah. But the Seska chair, you'll see like, That's oh. the layperson has seen that. And direct copies of that chair abound. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could find them on uh, the internet probably right now for $40. Yeah. Um. So Brewer extended the sculpture vocabulary he had developed in the carpentry shop at the Bauhaus into a personal architecture that made him one of the world's most popular architects at the peak of the 20th century design. His work includes art museums, libraries, college buildings, office buildings, and residences. This is, this is great. Many are in a brutalist architectural style. I love that. <laughs> that that is an actual term. Brutalist architecture is an architectural style which which emerged during the 1950s in the United Kingdom among the reconstruction projects of the post-war era. Brutalist buildings are characterized by minimalist construction that showcases the bare building materials and structural elements over decorative design. So very similar to the industrial modern that mm -hmm. we were talking about. Yeah. And again, more pointing towards the post-war rebuilding that we were talking about in the yeah. first episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, so his designs included the former IBM Research and Development Facility, which was the birthplace of the first personal computer. They had some good architects because they also had Jacobson, didn't mm -hmm. they? Yeah. He's regarded as one of the great innovators of modern furniture design and one of the most influential exponents of the international style. Hmm. Another, there, there's that same picture of the Wassily chair. What's wild is... I never even heard of them. Me neither. The long chair. Wow. Hmm. Bent plywood chaise. Yeah. Really, really, the arms are what make it really interesting. Yeah. Uh, very upswept arms with a with a crazy sort of recline. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the joinery is here. Yeah, yeah. Between these, or if I wonder if this piece, the bottom of it, this is laminated to the top. 
Mm-hmm. You know, these have like little, little ears wings, that come off. Yeah. It, this right here leads me to believe that. It looks like it's almost coming out, right? Yeah. It looks like you like right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, nice. maybe it's like a tenon. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that's the the seat and back and headrest are all one long bent form. Yeah, this almost looks like bird's eye veneer or something. Yeah. Yeah, look. Oh, look at the way the back hits the arms. Yeah, it, it looks like it is a tenon. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, these are skillfully done. I mean, it's not just the design. It's the build. Yeah. These go into one right here. Mm -hmm. You got this, this sort of strong back on the arm, which is yep. pretty cool. Guess to keep the the back when you lay when you lean back in it from flexing. Yeah, yeah. It It'll may yeah, not have had that at keeps, the beginning. Yeah, it keeps this from from wanting to bend. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like uh, I imagine the prototypes probably didn't have that, and they added it in. Look at just a little bit of spring in this. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was just flat, it would look completely different. Yeah. Almost like a dentist chair. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So there's a guy that we've never heard of. Brewer is his last name, B-R-E-U-E-R. -E -E and turns out he's like one of the most <laughs> important designers. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, mid-century they must be in that book yeah yeah um so we're, we're gonna wrap up um this little series of uh designers with george katsutoshi nakashima yeah probably my previous favorite uh mid-century designer <laughs> so it's up in the air now and <laughs> Yeah, so um, Nakashima was born 1905, lived till 1990. Again, all these guys, you know, lived and worked at the same time period. All were sort of, uh, you know, same age. And he was an American woodworker, architect, and furniture maker. And one of the leading innovators of the 20th century furniture design and a father of the American craft movement. In 1983, he accepted the Order of the Sacred Treasure, an honor bestowed by the Emperor of Japan and the Japanese government. Hmm. It wasn't uh, Abe, wasn't the... That's a... Well, I guess, no. Well, he was a prime minister, yeah, I think. They, I guess, yeah, they didn't have emperor at that point. Um, he was born, uh, as I said, in 1905 in Spokane, Washington. Uh the Japanese parents. He enrolled in the University of Washington program in architecture, graduating with a Bachelor of Architecture in 29. Um, so a lot of these folks that design furniture have an architecture background. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, in 31, after earning a master's degree in architecture from MIT, no small feat, like a local community college. 
yeah. yeah. Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Yes, just the, uh, you know, that's like Brookdale. That's the Brookdale of Boston. <laughs> Ocean County College. Yeah. Uh, Nakashima sold his car and purchased a round-the-world tramp steamship ticket. That's cool. Yeah. I did, uh, I was reading uh, his book, The Soul of a Tree, which is like, to buy, it's it's really hard to find. It's very expensive. The, the library had one copy, and I like re renewed it, yeah. renewed, and then they're like, we need it back. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, during this time, he spent a year in France working odd jobs to fund his artist's lifestyle. Uh, in Paris, he was introduced to Bauhaus architect Le Corbusier, and the two bonded over their views on the architect's moral obligation to society and the practice as a spiritual activity. Mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's a kind of another common thread grown with all these people that um, were so influential. And they did see the world as a bigger, more connected place. Oh, yeah, that their work transcended just the actual work mm -hmm. itself. You know, that their job, there was a higher calling than just, oh, we need a building design. yeah. Get the interns in here. Yeah. Call me when you got uh, seven-eighths of it done. Yeah. Um, he then went on to North Africa and eventually to Japan. And while in Japan, Nakashima went to work for Antonin Raymond, an American architect who had collaborated with Frank Lloyd Wright on the Imperial Hotel. Um, that must be uh, an important building in uh, Japan. Yeah. Imperial Hotel, Tokyo. Pretty sleek. Yeah. I guess to put it in context. Got kind of like an art deco. Yeah. Um you look at when it was when it was constructed. Uh, late eighteen it was created in the late eighteen eighties at the blah 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 blah. The original Imperial Hotel. Where's the Frank Lloyd Wright? 1922 to 1967. That's Frank Lloyd Wright's... Oh, his wing, yeah. Third and current main building, which replaced the Frank Lloyd Wright main building. Oh, so maybe this isn't the... This has a confusing timeline. Yeah. Anywho... So while working for Raymond in Japan, Nakashima toured extensively studying the subtleties of Japanese architecture and design. Um, I wonder what it felt like being a Japanese-American, essentially being American and going, well, I guess I could tell you what it feels like. I, I When I went back to Sicily, mm -hmm. uh, to the town where my uh, mother was born and where... Half the town literally was named Barone or Barone. It was weird. Yeah, but like thinking, oh, this could have been where I grew up, or you know, you yeah. see, and you do feel some sort of familial tie, but also probably a sense of total like uh, alienation. Out, yeah, yeah like, being an outsider. Exactly. It, it was a weird thing being removed from it a generation. 
Um, so during this period, he met Marion Okajima, who would become his wife. And while working for Raymond, Nakashima worked as the project architect for the Golconde Dormitory in Puducherry, India. Man, these guys do big jobs. Yeah. Supervising construction from 1937 to 1939. Now, I know he's trained as an architect, but it's like he's he's on like a uh, like a, a student tour, mm -hmm. and the next thing you know, he's in charge of construction <laughs> for these big projects. Yeah. Um, and while in India. See, this makes sense. He immerses himself in the spiritual teachings of the Aurobindo sect. Now, I don't know a lot particularly about that, but... I remember it, yeah, reading a lot about... They covered a lot of that in the book about his time in India. Mm, yeah, because it's he's a very spiritual guy. Mm -hmm. um, in 1964, uh, Ajira, I want to say, Sarabhai, invited Nakashima to... Ahmadabad. Uh, he spent three weeks in NID's wood workshop designing chairs, benches, tables, ottomans, lounges, day beds, shelves, and mirror frames. They, they were workaholics too. Yeah. They, they really they really worked. They were kept in production in limited numbers at the institute by referring to the detailed drawings and instructions left by Nakashima until about 1975. When Sarabai stepped down. That's wild. In 1937, Raymond's company was commissioned to build a dormitory at an ashram in Puducherry, India. Oh, uh, this is a repeat of that. Which Nakashima was the primary construction consultant. It was here that Nakashima made his first furniture. Wow, 1937. Yeah. In 1940... He's only 22. Holy crap. Uh, oh, no, sorry, 32. Born in 1905, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, well, I mean, he hadn't spent any time doing it. Yeah. Um, in 1940, Nakashima returns to America, and he began to make furniture and teach woodworking in Seattle. And he was interned during the Second World War, like... Uh, other uh, Japanese Americans and sent to Camp Minidoka in Hunt, Idaho in March of 1942. You know, you get in trouble for talking about things like this these days. <laughs> it's something that maybe a lot of people don't know about is that during World War II, a lot of, uh, well, especially the Japanese yeah. Americans were uh, all sent to camps like in Idaho and Montana, and they mm -hmm. were basically like... Prisoners, basically. Uh, yeah, I don't want to... It sounds harsh, but that's what it was. They were like prison camps. Yeah. You know, they were surrounded by... Like, if you've ever seen these World War II movies where they have, like, this wire fence, that's where they were. It wasn't like they were free to go or travel or no. do anything. Yeah, I mean, they, it's not like they, were, they weren't killing, <clears throat> killing them in there, but they were completely interned you know, isolated to themselves because they were seen as a, as a potential threat. Right. Take, they, you know, all their belongings and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, that happened less to a less extent to German Americans and Italian Americans where a lot of people like that were sort of 
what they called house arrest. Like I know famously Joe DiMaggio, the baseball player, his dad was a fisherman. Hmm. And what they did was they took his boat away. Jeez. <laughs> so they did things like that. Um, you can see... <laughs> We gotta, but these are things they don't really teach too much in school. I no, guess. Man. I mean, the I when I was teaching history, it didn't appear in the textbook. Yeah. I could just say that we. I think we touched on it briefly when I was in yeah. school. Um. So at the camp, at the at the camp, yeah, <laughs> he met Gentaro, sometimes called Gentoro Hikogawa a man trained in traditional Japanese carpentry. Uh, under his tutelage, Nakashima learned to master traditional Japanese hand tools and joinery techniques. Uh, again, making lemonade from lemons. Yeah. Perhaps more significant, he began to approach woodworking with discipline and patience, striving for perfection in every stage of construction. Nakashima's signature woodworking design was his large-scale tables made of large wood slabs with smooth tops but unfinished natural edges consisting of multiple slabs connected with butterfly joints. Which yeah, has been sort of uh, bastardized, the butterfly, butterfly oh, forget uh, about it. Dove, uh, you know, butterfly spline, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's something that I remember from the book is, you know, he they were saying that he really gained an appreciation for the sort of the idea of live edge and keeping things in their natural form because they would go out and sort of like scavenge pieces of wood from these like scrubby little trees and stuff. And they would make people in the camp, like the things that they needed, you mm -hmm. know? So he was, he was making things out of these, not out of lumber, but out of like these found pieces of wood that they would find like, you know, on the outskirts of the, the camps camp, I should say. Camp. Did they, I wonder if they had a petting zoo there. Maybe. <laughs> it was uh, next to the merry-go-round. <laughs> so this is, you know, in the 40s, the early 40s, where these things are, you know, uh, being, we're going to say invented, mm -hmm. because he is the inventor of this stuff. Um, and along with Danish furniture maker, I, I don't know how to say his first name. Is it Tej or Taj, I don't know. I Taj Freed, uh, Swedish, uh, well, we know James Cranoff, yeah. and Americans Wharton, Escherich, and Art Carpenter are considered to be among the first generation of studio furniture makers and are cited as highly influential to the field of contemporary woodworking. Uh, yes, indeed, they are. Yeah. Uh, New Hope Inspiration. In 1943... Antonin Raymond successfully sponsored Nakashima's release from the camp and invited him to his farm to work as a chicken farmer in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Now, Raymond... What a lifestyle appeared, change. Uh, he was... We were just talking about Raymond with... Um, the Imperial Hotel. Yeah. So, in his studio and workshop at New Hope, Nakashima explored the organic expressiveness of wood and choosing boards with knots and burls and figured grain. He designed furniture lines for Knoll, again, including the straight back chair, which is still in production. You gotta see what that we looks all, like. I'm pretty sure that's the 
the one that we are thinking of. And the Whittacombe Mueller. Oh, I'm not, I'm sorry. And Whittacombe Mueller as he continued his private commissions. Hmm. He designed furniture for Noel and Whittacombe Mueller. That's oh, that's not what I was chair. thinking. You thinking of the Conoid? Yeah. That's got a very straight back, a straighter back than the straight back chair. Yeah. 1946. The straight back is kind of a take on a, on a Windsor almost, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nakashima did a lot of that, you know, staked um, style furniture. Um, so he's there in uh, New Hope. Here which... we go. The straight chair is George Nakashima's modern interpretation of the traditional Windsor chair. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we hit the nail on the head. Yeah. <laughs> and he's designing furniture for Noel and Whittacombe Mueller. His studio grew incrementally until Nelson Rockefeller commissioned 200 pieces for his house in Pocantico Hills, New York in 1973. Jeez. Wow. I didn't know about that. I didn't either. Nakashima has named the inspiration in his work to include the Japanese tea ceremony, American shaker furniture. I know we talked about Nakashima a bit during that period. Mm -hmm. And the Zen Buddhist ideals of beauty. Nakashima self-identified as a Hindu Catholic shaker Japanese American. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Don't box me in. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Drawing on Japanese designs and shop practices, as well as on American and international modern styles, Nakashima created a body of work that would make his name synonymous with the best of 20th century American art furniture. Uh, so his legacy, um, at, you know, as putting it uh, mildly, is, is large. He's, the altar for peace in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Um, Nakashima's home studio and workshop near New Hope, Pennsylvania was listed on the U.S. National Register of Historic Places. And uh, six years later, in 2008, the property was also designated a National Historic Landmark. Um, in 2015, the site received a Keep It Modern grant from the Getty Foundation to create a solid conservation plan as a model approach for the preservation of historic properties. That's cool. So it's not going to disappear or go into disrepair. Yeah. One of Nakashima's workshops located in Takamatsu City, Japan, currently houses a museum and gallery of his works. The Nakashima Foundation for Peace, currently housed in the Mingarin Museum in New Hope, had its beginnings in 1984. Hmm. So that must, in Japan, must be his very early works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1984, George Nakashima had the opportunity to purchase the largest and finest walnut log he'd ever seen and sought to use the immense planks to their fullest potential. Um, how old is he now? Was, was he born in 05? 79 he is, yeah. Yeah, wow. He dreamed then that if altars for peace, which is a work of his, were made for each continent of the world as centers for meditation, prayer, and activities for peace, the world would be a better place. 
There they are. There it is. That's at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I guess that's the only one he, uh, he ever made. Um, I don't know. So you gotta zoom in. The first, okay. Combined two slabs of wood. When completed, it weighed three quarter of a ton. Wow. In approximately a triangle about three inches thick and 14 feet by 12 feet. Nakashima estimated that it cost him $10,000. He initial, initially sought to put it in the UN, envisioning a place where it could, quote, belong to everyone and be, quote, dedicated to the divine and peace. This effort was unsuccessful, and Nakashima turned to his friend Stephen Clark Rockefeller, who put him in touch with James Parks Morton of Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Is that New York? Must be. Uh, yeah, New York, Manhattan, Morningside Heights. 110th Street, yeah. Across 110th Street. <laughs> the upper, upper West Side. Trying to do a thing for peace. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's how that line finishes. <laughs> uh, the next one was completed and delivered to the Russia, to the Russia, to the Russians, where yeah. it was called a peace table and approved for placement in the Russian Academy of Sciences, February 1992. By that year, altars have been placed in Russia, New York, India, and a fourth was set to be placed in the Desmond Tutu Peace Center in Cape Town, South Africa. Oh, wow. Hmm. I guess maybe the fourth never never uh, made it to completion. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. Over the past decade, Nakashima's furniture has become ultra-collectible, and his legacy of what became known as the free-edge aesthetic influential. Um, yeah, we, they call it live-edge now. Mm-hmm. Today, the Nakashima business makes standard wooden furniture and continues to create more peace altars. Oh, okay. Nice. Soon to complete Nakashima's legacy uh, of getting one on every continent. To do so, the company has procured yet another extremely valuable walnut log that almost matches the size and magnificence of the original. Nakashima's daughter, uh, Mira. Uh, took over the company from her father after he died in 1990, sadly. Amir, who's worked for the family business since 1970, currently produces his iconic designs as well as her own. And we're going to wrap up with a handful of links here. And um, oh, there are some, some nice quotes. quotes. Let's take a look at the Nakashima chair. That's there it the is. the Conoy chair. Um, I love this chair. Yeah. it You could really see it around a dining table. Mm -hmm. I know that Corey loves the... Um, Maloof. The Maloof in, in the same way I think that we love this chair. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds crazy. I mean, but. similar kind of uh, joinery here, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like a, these bridled... I mean, the Maloof joint is basically... a. a Fancy bridal joint. Yeah. But it's it's more sculptural where this is... Yeah. yeah. Could, um, the, the thing is, like, the, the leg and the back are, like, one straight line. Yeah, I mean, it's only made out of one, two, three, four, five, six pieces of wood, basically. You know, the seat's mm -hmm. a glue-up of whatever, two pieces. I mean, it, it's probably... It's a Nakashima, it's probably one piece. Yeah. 
So literally it's one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. Six pieces and some, and a couple spindles. Yeah. That's cool. The conoid bench, which, uh, we're, we're both familiar with that as well, which yeah. live edge slab with a similar, um, crest rail and spindles. I love the asymmetrical nature of this. Yeah. How, you know, the spindles sort of just go from a corner out to the edge to the, the middle rather than following this back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't go all the way to the very end. It's just, it's just so artfully done and the shape of that, the top rail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is the sort of live edge or free edge furniture that, that, you know, people think that they're achieving, but they're, they're, they're not. not. No, I mean, uh, these people, people like Nakashima, or, or, you know, there's only one. There's the altar piece. We just looked at Nakashima bed. Yeah, I've seen this before, man. Yeah, very Japanese style, low slung with mm -hmm. a, just a slant, a really gorgeous, super you know, natural state slab as a headboard. Yeah, it's got little burls mm -hmm. here, 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 over here. It looks like, I don't know, what kind of tree do you think that is? I don't know. It looks it like it might be maple. Because that pink there like that? Well, it just kind of looks like, you know, you get that, that, um, I don't know what you'll call it. Like these silver maples get this mm -hmm. kind of look sometimes. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic looking. What's next? Nakashima cabinet. That's, That's cool. cool. You yeah. don't see a lot of uh, Nakashima casework. No, it's really understated. Some really gorgeous panels for the door, book yeah, match, like book match crotch, yeah, figure. Like this, uh, like that hardware. hardware. Yeah. Is that a piece of burl? It is. Yeah. Wider rails than styles yeah different I, with style on the inside than the outside yeah but as a composed piece it's gorgeous you don't pick up on it you know it, it looks looks right you know that's the kind of thing you design and and the client will go why how come the <laughs> we actually have <laughs> had people say they're like why is the bottom rail i'm like because it's just because it is. It just looks good. Yeah. You know, I know. I know. I mean, we do, we we go through that. Not all the time, but. Yeah, I mean, it gives, this distance here is probably the same as this distance here. Yeah. From the inside of this style to the, the outside, outside of the, the case. case. Yep. So it looks, you know, properly composed when you look at it as a whole. I know. I know. Even the, the simple base is nice. This desk, let's see this desk. Oh, that's cool. That I like. I like this base. 
really, really nice, like a, a wooden cat, almost like a little file cabinet, mm -hmm. some integral mm -hmm. handles yeah. carved in a desktop that floats above it. Yeah. And almost the, the leg out to the side almost looks like a tree branch. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Very different than, you know, everything else that we've looked at, the Nakashima stuff, very different. Oh, wow. Huh. This is a writing desk. Uh, I said side table. Oh, side table? Yeah. Oh, that's right. We're just looking at the desk. Interesting. Yeah, a guy like that. This is this is a very Nakashima half lap sort of, you know, he makes these monolithic bases with a with a a perpendicular leg and then he's got you know, a spindle coming out of it to support this burl. You, uh, you could see to me this Kind of tells me he found that piece of wood and then envisioned what it could be. Yeah, that's which is like a total Krenov kind of, mm -hmm. you know, thing. He said the same thing. Really nice. I mean, everybody's heard of Nakashima. Everybody listening to us has heard of him. Um, do yourself a favor. Just check out some of these pictures and we'll we'll wrap it up with yeah. the couple of nice quotes I pulled out. Um Here's Nakashima on his design approach. Our approach is based on direct experience, a way of development outward from an inner core, something of the same process that nature uses in the creation of a tree. Um, and lastly, instead of a long running and bloody battle with nature to dominate her, we can walk in step with a tree to release the joy in her grains to join with her, to realize her potential, to enhance the environments of man. Heady stuff. Yeah. Um, thing is, Nakashima believed it with his heart and soul. Yeah. And you could see it in his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can put it any better than that. No. Well, that's the mid-century modern period. Yeah. I think that was uh, maybe my favorite four episodes that we've yeah. done. It was pretty cool, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I learned a lot about guys that I never, I mean, I'd, I'd heard the name Saarinen only because I do crossword puzzles mm -hmm. and he, his name came up as an architect. I had no idea he designed those pieces of furniture and... I want to check out that PBS... Uh yeah. Uh, the Amer uh, American Masters. Um, yes. Was it um, Sarnin, the man who saw into the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which definitely. Sarnin was he? E... I think... Was he Ari? Uh, how do you pronounce the name? I don't know. There was the two brothers. They both started with E. Shark Tank, uh, Eames. Okay, down from here. Hero. Arrow. Arrow and Eames's buddy was Saarinen. Was the other Saarinen the Frank Lloyd Wright? Oh, Jacobson, Arn Jacobson. Yeah. Uh, somebody was buddies with Arrow Saarinen's brother. 
Unless I'm misremembering. No, you you have a good memory. I don't know. Listeners, tell us tell us who the hell I'm thinking of. That was like not Eli, but something like that. It's been a long four episodes. We yeah. just we just did four episodes running. Yep. This is our longest one. Going on an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> this one I thought might be short. Yeah. Well, folks, we could talk all day. We'll uh, but we'll leave you at that. Um, you know, thanks for tuning in as always. Yeah, yeah, it's great. We'll see you next week. Uh, I'm not sure what we got for you, but we got something. We'll have something. All right. Take care. As always, Rob and I, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week. If you want to help support the podcast, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our Patreon, or you can use one of our affiliate links in the podcast description for vesting finishes or Myoderm CBD pain relief cream. Um, Again, we appreciate your support. Thanks for tuning in.